This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to Insight. Ko Philippa Tolly Tene. Nepal is looking to New Zealand to learn how to attract tourists who are prepared to stay longer and spend more. Both countries heavily promote their spectacular scenery, mountains, the great walks and high-octane adventure activities. While tourist numbers here are softening, Nepal is recording spectacular growth, especially from the valuable Chinese market right next door. Lynn Freeman went to Nepal to find out if it could eventually rival New Zealand as a tourist destination. Throughout the Kathmandu Valley, craftsmen are hurrying to repair the remaining earthquake-ravaged UNESCO heritage buildings, ahead of a hoped-for bumper tourism year ahead, four and a half years after the 7.8 shake that killed nearly 9,000 people. The government's ambitious Visit Nepal 2020 campaign aims to double tourist numbers to at least 2 million. I've arrived in Kathmandu in monsoon season to find out what Nepal and New Zealand can learn from each other's successes and failures and if these two old friends are now rivals for Chinese and Indian tourists. This land is wide open for sharing. Our culture welcomes all cultures. New Zealand's remoteness, once a drawcard, is now a downside with global consumer concern about long-distance flight carbon emissions. But it's sticking with its long-time 100% pure brand campaign. However, this kind of promotion depends on that image remaining untarnished. There are lessons for New Zealand in the biggest blow to Nepal's tourism ambitions. After a photograph of a traffic jam of climbers on Mount Everest and the news of deaths associated with it went viral. Seeing the incredible picture in the media today, it's been doing the rounds, this one actually, of the massive queue of climbers trying to reach the summit of Everest. It's quite a sight. The queue is right Nepal and New Zealand share a particular bond forged when Sir Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay conquered Mount Everest in 1953. Sherpa Tenzing's grandson, Tashi Tenzing, who's a high-end tourist operator, entrepreneur and motivational speaker, says his grandfather would be appalled at what's happening on the slopes of the mountain he loved. This commercialised expedition has gone to extend where it's unstoppable today. And it's uh, big dollars, big business. So the government's not going to do anything? They cannot, because today you say about 20, 20 people or 30 people can only climb this year. What happens to that numbers of Sherpas who are waiting in line to be employed, and they see this every year as one of the... You know, very lucrative uh, work, and, 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 and one year of Everest can look after our family for a whole year. It's something that uh, the government just can't stop, and there'll be a revolt. So the only way, I guess, it can stop is clients who are coming to climb Everest. You know, why am I climbing Everest? To just say that I've climbed Everest, is, is it something that's a big thing? And there are climbers who are destined to climb Everest, and there will be climbers who will never climb Everest, even though they've tried four or five, six times. Ramil Adhikari, president of the Nepalese Society of Wellington, believes the New Zealand government is best placed to help Nepal make the necessary changes to make mountaineering safer there. It's uh, like 
sacred holy mountain. Everest is uh, really popular in worldwide and in Nepal. It's really sad and it's like a disrespectful to the Everest. The main thing is what New Zealand government can do because of our relationship is that there is no really strict and written policies, rules regarding the climbing the mountains. So there should be some rules needs to be put down. Do you think New Zealand could help? Yes, uh, definitely. To to come up with tighter regulations? Yes. Yeah, make the strict regulation and then limit the permit. You'll, you'll put forward an official kind of submission or request to the yes, government yes. from the Nepalese society? Society. That's, that's what we are planning and we are making big, big team for that purpose and we'll do it. And it's a problem New Zealand's honorary consul to Nepal, Lisa Churgal, has also been contemplating. She's had a long involvement in tourism in Nepal and says both nations share a need to protect their international image of having pristine landscapes. And your Tongariro crossing is, you know, is a good example, and it's a matter of control. And I think that you've introduced recently introduced some measures, um, and that's what we're looking at now, especially with the mountaineering aspects. We've got um, some issues. I think quite a lot of our issues are very unfairly beaten up by the media, so they're perhaps not as drastic as um, the world is um, given to believe. But Nepal is struggling with its. Uh, how to make mountaineering successful for visitors as well as being um, a huge employer for local people and very important for the economy of such an underdeveloped and poor country. The head of the Nepal Tourism Board, Deepak Joshi, agrees that overcrowding on Mount Everest has damaged Nepal's reputation internationally. But he's adamant the Visit Nepal 2020 campaign is back on track, and that includes promoting more than Nepal's mountains. Since quite long, Nepal as a destination has a very stereotype image in source market that Nepal is only mountainous country and only adventure activities are on offer which is not true because we have so many things which is very, very strong and we are very, very rich in that segment also. For example, wildlife. We have 12 plus national parks and so many wild, uh, really wild animals we have. Not only in wildlife segment, our conservation efforts are also and widely known as the best efforts in the world. You've doubled your tiger population. Nepal is the only country which is going to double its total tiger population by 2022. And another reason is Nepal is very, very rich in uh, culture, heritage, festivals. Probably Nepal is the only country where uh, we have more festivals than the days in a year. Most of the visitors, they don't know about these facts. But after all this investment and hype, can Nepal realistically double its tourist numbers next year? In 2018, we received nearly 1.2 million. But in that uh, number, the Indian visitors who come by land are not counted. That is another uh, 1 million plus number because we have open border. Do you have a goal for the number of tourists that you would like to have? I mean, could you, could you accommodate twice mm-hmm. that number? Yeah. Uh, right now, uh, as per hotel and then the accommodation capacity, we can accommodate easily the double the number of what we, have, uh, we are receiving now. 
But this ambitious goal has its critics, including outspoken tourism entrepreneur Barat Baznet. He promotes traditional music, dance and cuisine to the higher end of the market. I'm more concerned than excited uh, because uh, my understanding is Nepal as a small nation yeah, with uh, huge culture and biodiversity. We should first of all protect our culture and biodiversity. So to protect that, we have to have a minimum impact. And to have minimum impact, we need uh, less visitors. And these visitors should be should be high quality. Uh, they should be spending more time, more money. So instead of having 10 visitors, if you can earn from one visitors, why do you need extra nine? Yeah. But if Nepal is clean, green, and have good service, yeah, infrastructure is good, then they will tell their friends, families, their acquaintances about the country. So there will be a lot of people wanting to come to Nepal. So you can sell Nepal in a higher value. That argument for quality, not quantity, is echoed by Lisa Churgill. She says even though the number of visitors to Nepal from China is soaring, the country needs to follow New Zealand's example of targeting higher-end tourists. It tends to be the most mature end of the market, meaning the most sophisticated um, who you're seeing in New Zealand, whereas we tend to get the uh, more budget end of the market here in Nepal because it's you know so easy to get to and so close and is not considered to be so desirable by the more sophisticated high-end Chinese spenders who want to go to uh, you know London and Paris and New York and um, New Zealand for the for the scenery and the pristine conditions. So I think we're it's sort of slightly mixing apples and pears. I don't think we're ever going to be able to attract the same sort of Chinese that visit New Zealand. But it would be lovely to think that we can, if we can improve um, the quality and range of our products that will appeal to the markets that you've so successfully attracted in New Zealand. I'm Lynn Freeman. And you're listening to an Insight programme on the challenges to Nepal of doubling tourism numbers. With more tourists wanting to experience wilderness areas comes more pressure on fragile ecosystems, as New Zealand knows all too well. Deepak Josu says Nepal is working hard to encourage its tourists to behave responsibly. In 2020, we have another small initiative is to educate the tourists also about the sustainable practices and then some agencies like Mountaineering Association. Together with them we have developed some certain code of conduct because nature is very, very uh, sensitive thing and we have to protect it. At six o'clock in the morning I had a pretty good sleep in my first community homestay here in Nepal and I'm having a closer read of the guest code of conduct. A really important document, it's framed, it's up here in the room. It says, uh, treat your hosts and other members of the community with respect. Kindly refrain from asking the hosts to provide food, beverages and other services unavailable at the homestay. That's to avoid embarrassment. I had a fantastic meal last night. There's plenty of food here. Uh, Respect the culture and sentiments of the local people and dress accordingly. Affordability is another drawcard for Nepal. It's a much cheaper option than New Zealand. But it is a developing nation, and that means it can also be a challenging destination. 
Nepal does have what amounts to a tax on foreign visitors who have to pay more for domestic flights. This frustrates tourist operators in remote areas that rely on wildlife tourism. Inexplicably, only an estimated 4 to 5% of visitors to Nepal come to see the country's wildlife, which rivals that of India. Bardia National Park in western Nepal is famous for its growing Bengal tiger population. But senior ranger at Bardia Tiger Resort, Reshan Thapa, believes the domestic flight tax deters tourists from visiting national parks and community forests. Which is not really fear. We talk with uh, many times with the Nepal Tourism Board, with the government of Nepal, that's the civil aviation minister of civil aviation. Who's also the minister of yeah, tourism. Yeah, especially the, what is the problem to make an evaluation the same way. Okay, foreigners, Nepalese, Indian, doesn't matter. For the all, same ticket, same price, because one man only take one seat. Another significant change has been in tourists' attitudes towards traditional elephant safaris. Bahadur Tamang heads one of the community-run forests that border Nepal's most famous national park at Chitwan, in the south of the country. He says most tourists from outside Asia now won't opt for elephant safaris because of animal welfare concerns, a real issue for his community forest that has no roads for tourist jeeps. Yeah, nowadays only you know, most of the Chinese and uh, Nepalese riding on elephant. Uh, most of the European people, uh, they don't want to ride. No, I think, uh, you know, there is uh, no any problem on riding on elephant. They thought it is protected uh, mammals. Uh, sometimes the elephant driver, when they have to control the elephant, sometimes they use stick and tourists thought, oh, it is, you know, painful or something like that. WWF is a strong supporter of increasing wildlife tourism, both in the interests of the wildlife through entrance fees to national parks and to help bordering communities that are vulnerable to visiting wildlife like tigers, elephants and rhinos. Kana Gurong, country representative for WWF Nepal, explains how tourism has been crucial to the country's successful anti-poaching campaign. Traders uh, mobilize local people because that's how they have the information. That's how they know the animals. That's they how promise they, them a few dollars. Yeah, a few dollars. They can money. be paying uh, relatively very little. They can pay and, and still got a large sum of money for the, those and they can push. So in the, it's the awareness bringing into those people, improving their lives so they don't get into that track is important. And the animals are more valuable to yeah. them alive than and dead. And the animals yeah. are more valuable. That can, uh, that's why we're doing so much homestays and all of the improving lives. It's important that revenue sharing, tourism is revenue so you can improve your life better when these species are there. Both New Zealand and Nepal invest heavily in maintaining their vital roading networks, which are under constant threat from landslides, earthquakes and flooding. In Nepal, the narrow main highways have long two-lane stretches, often with sheer drops on one side, blind bends and steep climbs. The roads are all too often death traps for visitors unused to these conditions, 
and to driving on the left-hand side. But in Nepal, there's no railway to speak of. The roads often aren't asphalted, and they take a hammering from the constant stream of heavy trucks. And then in Nepal, there's the damage done by monsoon rains, with roads in many areas washed out, but only patched up afterwards. Airports are also a headache for travellers. Tashi Tenzing says the situation is inexcusable. This is the most important thing is the infrastructure. You know, this can be addressed so quickly, you know. It's not inexpensive. No, and Nepal has the budget. They have a yearly budget, which is a massive budget. But one sad thing is that we have a huge corruption here, massive corruption. So in the long term, we really need younger generations of good political leaders, you know, who have a good vision for the country. I mean, you go to abroad and you walk into your own, uh, you land in Kathmandu Airport and you come out, you go into the immigration. At least today the immigration is a little bit faster, much, much better than what it used to be 20 years ago. But then you walk down to the carousel, it's another disaster there, you know. You have bags being thrown from left to right. You have seven, eight flights coming in the time. You've got three carousels to dispose the bag. I noticed that. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a chaos starts. But it's, it's a, I guess they call it very organized chaos. But it's, a, it's not really good for people who've got, you know, who've come all the way. You know, we have a lot of landslides and accidents. You know, and I travel every day to, uh, to the, my farm and you see the, the condition of the, the mudslide. I mean, it's... Absolutely dangerous. The end of the financial year just happened last month, so they had to complete all the job. That was the thing. So they tried to do uh, tarmacking in the monsoon. It's never going to work. Another area where both nations struggle is with visitor accommodation. While some of our top tourist spots are squeezed at peak time, in parts of Nepal, there's an oversupply. Take Sora, a village that services the Chitwan National Park in southern Nepal. Here, annual bed occupancy is around 40%. During low season, from July to September, it's nearer 10%, figures that would make New Zealand hoteliers shudder. Suman Gumer's hotel is in Sora, and he's the vice president of the Nepal Hotel Association. Currently, we have 187,000 tourists coming here every year from the last year's data. So we are planning to have like double number of tourists for that year because the number what we have now is not sufficient for our uh, business here. Currently, like our occupancy rate is very, very low compared to Kathmandu and Pokhara. Like we have only 40% occupancy throughout the year. So the Chitun region need to be pushed up in the abroad market for the safari tourism. Uh, if you look on data, what we have, the tourists coming to safari is, is less than 5% of the total tourists coming up in Nepal. Uh, because people think that Nepal is a mountainous country. They don't think that we have safaris also. It's lack of marketing. So the key factor for the promotion of safari is that we need to do marketing. We need to spread the words that we have safari in Nepal as well. A couple of hours' drive from Sora in the Mahdi district is one of more than 70 community homestays across Nepal supported by WWF. Offering tourists separate accommodation and cooked meals within rural villages is now a financial lifeline for many low-income Nepalese communities. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. That looks really good. 
Thank you. My community homestay host in Mardi was Sauce. We chatted via a translator as she cooked dinner for her five guests. Having a Kiwi come stay was a novelty. 95% of her guests are Nepalese. And how long has she been involved with community homestay? It has been three years that uh, she has been doing this. <laughs> and why was she keen to get involved in community homestay? Clearly she works very hard already. Mm-hmm. They used to have uh, the, the, the agriculture as a, as, a, as a subsistence livelihood approach. But later they realised that the homestay could be the even more uh, profitable in terms of getting more income. So they, they initiated the homestay. Yeah. In the busy season, how often would she be cooking for visitors? Yeah, it's not uh, the continuous because there is the rotational systems. Two to three days they will get the, the guest. Um, so every two or three days? Yeah, every two or three days. That makes yeah. it manageable. So financially this has been really... An hour and a half drive away on the other side of Chitwan National Park... I meet one of the biggest success stories in WWF-supported community homestays. It's a prime location for spotting wildlife. While visitors choose community homestays for an authentic experience, with prosperity comes change. Dani Ramguro heads the fast-growing Amaltari buffer zone community homestay. Yeah, that's true. It's, uh, it has been changing quite a lot. All level of development, like the social development, they are more educated. I mean, they started to uh, invest in educations. And then, the, for example, if you see the houses, they, they are bigger than, than before. So it's because of... The, the increased level of income of the local communities and the households. This is something that WWF is wary of. Programme manager Barat Gotami works closely with community homestays and he sees the changes. There were poaching happening. The forest was not like this dense. It was like uh, all degraded. So what could be done to restore this forest and then to protect the wildlife here? Intensive community engagements community-based groups, mobilization. We found these attempts were successful. Okay, community are able to protect the nearby forest. So what could be the next support to the community so that they could get returns from their investments of restoring the forest and protecting the wild animals? So that was the main idea that we started supporting the local communities for establishing community homestay. But the expansion of the infrastructure in the village and the socioeconomic status of community uh, has been increased very rapidly. So we are suggesting them to maintain the culture, to maintain the beauty of the traditional view, traditional ambience. So that's how we encourage them. If Visit Nepal 2020 succeeds in launching a tourism boom, is there a danger that this will change the fabric of these traditional villages? Bharat says this risk is outweighed by the benefits to the communities and also to visitors who choose rural community homestays. The cost you invest here, maximum $15 you can spend in a night, right? And then if you spend $5, additional $5, you can have enough food, whatever you want to have. Oh, and so that are all, yeah, that are <laughs> all locally made, and there is no the pesticide used in the vegetables. That's the clear benefit if you stay in homestay. And then you, you could have a good chance to know, learn about the culture, right? You, you have the, the economic benefits and then you have the good food. 
in Kathmandu, tourists are also sport for choice when it comes to accommodation, from new international hotel chains through to eco-lodges, guest houses, Airbnbs and backpackers. But the new accommodation kit on the block is community homestays and they're proving a real hit with New Zealanders. My host in Patan, one of the three cities within the Kathmandu Valley, was Uzilla Sake, who's welcomed several hundred visitors into her family home over the past few years, many of them Kiwis. I ask uh, most of the guests to say, why you choose homestay? And uh, most of the guests are say that uh, hotel is uh, very expensive and we want to uh, learn Nepali communities, uh, culture and uh, festivals. And it is possible to, uh, if we stay in homestay, they want to talk uh, with owners and they want to know about um, their culture, their uh, habits, their daily lifestyles. So they want to... uh, uh, stay in uh, homestay. I asked service designer Bikal Kanal to explain the difference between community homestays and Airbnbs. Basic idea is the same that uh, you go and uh, live in someone else's house, someone who is a local and uh, is willing to host you. But in my personal perspective, an Airbnb is just a modification of the mainstream hotels. Instead, we community homestay, we try to engage and involve the visitors as much locally as we can so that they can have this good insight how a traditional and how an authentic Nepali family lives its life and they can have their insights in their cultures, in their lifestyles and they can understand a different part of Nepal than can understand the Nepal by its people rather than its uh, places. Everyone I spoke to involved in tourism and conservation in Nepal acknowledged there are substantial infrastructural issues that have to be addressed. Tashi Tensing says Nepal is already on people's bucket lists. We need to really uh, keep working, you know, look after the infrastructure first, you know, make sure the airports are good, and the, you know, the, the roads infrastructure is good. It's got to be safe, not just good. People are coming from a long way from different parts of the world. It's got to be safe. You know, they, they need to feel they're safe in the country, you know. And if, if they feel that, then I think tourism is automatically will do well, you know. Tashi Tensing would just like his country to up its game to realise its full tourism potential. That programme was written and presented by Lynn Freeman, who travelled to Nepal with the support of the Asian New Zealand Foundation. If you'd like to podcast other insight programmes on issues like the future of dairy or who the New Zealand security agencies are watching, you can head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Insight page on the RNZ website or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week is the first insight from the in-depth team's dive into what it means for New Zealand to have a population of 5 million. Teresa Cowie speaks to five five-year-olds to find out about their lives as they start school. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's all from Insight for today. Great to have you listening and do join us again next time.